0: Are we better off trying to forget painful, potentially divisive memories? Do we get along better when we avoid opening old wounds? Why is it often so difficult to work through the past and what are the potential benefits of doing so? These are the questions we explore in Realms of Memory. I'm your host, Rick Dodarian, and in today's episode, we look at how, over 75 years on, Japan continues to be divided over the memory of the Asia-Pacific War. This 15-year conflict, which stretched from 1931 to 1945, continues to be described as Japan's history problem. It's a problem that strains relations between Japan and its neighbors. It's a problem that fuels considerable distrust of Japan's political leaders. In many respects, Yasukuni Shrine, located in the heart of the nation's capital, has come to symbolize Japan's history problem. To delve into this subject, we are very fortunate to welcome Associate Professor of History, Akiko Takenaka, from the University of Kentucky, to discuss her book, Yasukuni Shrine, History, Memory, and Japan's Unending Postwar. Akiko, thank you for taking time to join this episode of Realms of Memory.
1: Thank you for having me, very excited to be here.
0: To begin, could you help us understand what is Yasukuni Shrine, and why has it become so controversial?
1: The easiest way to explain it is sort of a military memorial, right? For all of um, the members of the Japanese military who died at war between um, 1868, and 1945. And it, the assumption is that when you die at war for the emperor, um, your spirit is summoned into the shrine and um, transformed into a God or merged into a God um, that is supposed to protect the nation of Japan. It has become a problem um, starting in the 1970s when um, you know the men who had been convicted um, as class A war criminals had been enshrined at Yasukuni um, in 1978. And when that word got out, right, it became a shrine that represents all of Japan's war crimes to the left and to the international audience. But for the right, though, Yasukuni Shrine still symbolizes you know, Japan's nationalism. And it is something that um, sort of reaffirms the families who lost, some of the families who have lost their families, uh, family members, loved ones to the war. So there's a left and a right, and the shrine is sort of caught in between.
0: Akiko argues that calls to destroy the shrine or to replace it with a new national memorial to the nation's war dead are not the answer to Japan's history problem. Instead, the Japanese need to take on the difficult task of working through their past. In many respects, focusing blame on Yasukuni for Japan's crimes in the Asia Pacific War is a way of avoiding that work by scapegoating a symbol of a regime and its leaders who no longer exist.
1: In a way, I think that the shrine is a very convenient presence for the Japanese left, who do acknowledge that Japan committed crimes, drawing um, the 14 years between 1931 and 1945, but that if the left keeps blaming the shrine for, you know, um, convincing young men to die at war, right? That that was the most courageous thing to do, and it didn't matter what else you did as long as you died for the emperor. And so, like that kind of narrative, the left latches on to and can argue that that is why Japan committed war crimes instead of really, you know, working on educating the youth about Japan's past. Um, Sort of a a parallel to all the critical theory, um, critical race theory issues that are going around in the United States right now. Um, Education is very important in Japan, but, you know, many lawmakers have shied away from going in that direction. They're having lawsuits in the 70s and 80s about you know, how to um, teach the history of modern Japan, but that's not been dealt with more recently. And so it, it's sort of, to oversimplify, as long as the left is blaming the shrine, it doesn't have to confront Japan's traumatic past.
0: By exploring the larger history of Yasukuni, Akiko takes us beyond the contemporary polemics surrounding the shrine. We come to appreciate how the shrine functioned as part of the Meiji Reformation, the period of dramatic political change beginning in the mid-19th century, which created the modern Japanese nation and national identity.
1: Japan before Meiji did not really have a collective identity as a nation. In a way, people were more... um, loyal to um, the the daimyo of their individual domain. And there was a strong domain identity, but not a big national identity as a nation. And so this idea of, you know, commemorating everyone together in one place seemed new to me. And that's where I started researching. Um, That's sort of the very beginning that I was looking into. I learned that um, Choshu domain, where the majority of the earliest leaders of the Meiji government came from, um, and and it's still true today, a lot of the recent politicians come from that area too, but Choshu domain, which is at the Western end of of the, the biggest island of Japan, Um, they were conducting sort of this domain-wide rituals to remember the lives lost for the cause of their particular domain. And there are no existing records about this to sort of definitively say that this is the case, but I'm speculating that that is where this idea came from and the leaders of the new government decided to sort of expand what they were doing back into a domain to a nationwide project, um, especially to sort of create a new national identity collective identity um, through one. Memorial, And this is a time where, you know, Japan was being sort of pressured from um, the outside, right? And so when you get pressure from the outside, you have to create, develop a, a sort of a collective identity. And it came as a part of that process.
0: Using the shrine to form a new Japanese identity was no easy task. For decades, those who visited the shrine came primarily from the Tokyo area, their motivation for going to Yasukuni had little or nothing to do with any kind of national or patriotic sentiment.
1: Well, initially, it was just the local people. Um, And, you know, there were all these rituals to appease the dead that had been going on traditionally, like sumo matches and fireworks and things like that um, um, started to take place on the shrine grounds. And so, you know, the local people would go. Um to enjoy the space, right? And enjoy the events. And so I read a lot of, you know, diaries and memoirs of um, writers who grew up in the area and then they would talk about it as like a park, a very cool Western style park. um, And that they went to go see circuses and horse races and things like that. And so in a way it was just a, 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 a famous spot. And the other thing was that um, a lot of the structures that were built, like there are two big stone lanterns um, flanking the main gateway to the shrine grounds. Um, that became very popular because it was a very beautiful site. Um, it was on top of the, you know, a slope of Kudan. And because, you know, Tokyo wasn't as built as today, you could sort of take in the Tokyo Bay from the shrine grounds. And in 1870, oh no, I'm forgetting the year now, um, they built the original structure of the Yushuka Military Museum, and that was one of the earliest um, Western-style buildings. So people went to the shrine grounds for those purposes, and they weren't very conscious about who was, what, what the shrine was for and and who it was enshrining.
0: Very gradually, Yasukuni did become a site of what Akiko describes as institutionalized joy. As Japan embarked on its own project of imperialist expansion at the end of the 19th century, with wars against China, then Russia, Yasukuni became a place for the celebration of Japan's military victories
1: two main events really helps um, sort of nurture this this institutionalization of joy. And it's the two wars that happened around the turn of the 20th century. So Sino-Japanese War, um, 1894 to 1895, and the Russo-Japanese War, 1904 to 1905. And Sino-Japanese War was the first Major international war that Japan, modern Japan, had fought. And, you know, the Japanese people are overjoyed because, you know, they all know that China is such a big country. Of course, what they don't know is that China was a very weak country at that time because it had been so damaged, right, um, by the opium wars. But there's a lot of joy in, 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 In understanding that Japan is modernizing and becoming more stronger internationally as well. And so, A lot of celebratory events take place at Yasukuni Shrine. Same with the Russo-Japanese War, too, where um, there is a lot of displays of spoils of war. And they are celebrating on the shrine grounds all these victories. But what the local people, for the most part, didn't know was that the night before the celebration, the enshrinement of the war that had taken place on the very same shrine grounds especially the first time of Japanese war, very few people died on the Japanese side. So, you know, a lot of people did not know somebody who lost a family member. It changes with the Russo-Japanese War. Um, But um, the celebration is really in the forefront um, during those two wars, and it's not just at Yasukuni Shrine. And especially during the Russo-Japanese War, um, there's a big space in front of the palace where the emperor resides, and that too became a, a space for celebration. Ueno Park also became a space for celebration, and so and then Yasukuni grounds, right? And so these three spots were sort of connected by victory parades, and 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 decorated trolley cars and lantern parades and things like that and the whole city was celebrating and the the fact that right one of the key sites is Yaskuni Shrine where all the people who had died are being enshrined is really sort of not brought to the foreground and so people are all about celebrating and not really thinking about the war dead at this point
0: first understood as a site of leisure and entertainment, then as a space to celebrate military victories, it took decades before Yasukuni became a belief system. Here Akiko stresses the important role played by the newly created Japanese school system in educating children about how to understand the religious significance of Yasukuni. This education was reinforced by a variety of group activities intended to anchor what children were learning in school.
1: Well, education is um, central um, and the Ministry of Education kept updating the textbooks. And especially if you look at the history textbooks or the ethics textbooks, um, there are, you know, chapters devoted to Yasukuni Shrine where it's the textbooks are explaining to the children the significance of Yasukuni Shrine right so if, if you die at war you're enshrined here and that's the greatest deed that you can achieve if you're a boy and even the emperor comes to pay tribute to you to the shrine I, and, and these the entries are sort of um what's the right way to put it um Organized so that um, it matches the festival dates of the shrine. So, for example, there's a spring festival in April, and there is a fall festival and, in October. And if you look at the textbooks, um, those chapters would fall on the, the time period, the festival, and and, um, and gradually, gradually, the government Ministry of Education starts to sort of mandate schools to incorporate rituals that has to do with Yasukuni Shrine into their everyday activities, or there will be school trips. Um, And um, there are these graduation trips, which is not the kind of graduation trips that happen in the US, but for example, so elementary school in Japan is six years. On your sixth year, um, at some point, you get to take a collective trip through your school couple of nights away. Um, it happens um, the last year of junior high school, the last year of high school as well. And the Ministry of Education starts to pressure a lot of the elementary schools in particular to, to bring the students to Tokyo to, to visit Yasukuni Shrine as a part of, um, you know, the graduation school trip. So there are these things that are being sort of gradually mandated um, from Tokyo to the local schools.
0: Once the Asia-Pacific War began in 1931, the use of group activities to show proper forms of respect and reverence for the military and the war dead took on an entirely new magnitude of importance. Through group activities, which were often compulsory, social conformity became a powerful mechanism for indoctrinating the Japanese in right ways of thinking and behaving.
1: So There are a variety of units, and, you know, schools can be a unit. Right? Um, Or youth groups that were present in every village, or neighborhood associations, or even workplaces. And so things that are sort of reported as volunteers doing X, Y, and Z, it's usually um, children doing something as a class because, you know, the school principal may have pressured. Um, the home, homeroom teacher to take the kids to go volunteer somewhere. But these are always reported as voluntary things. And I think I talk about one um, celebration, was it? And then it's sort of reported as a spontaneous event, but in fact, they were being pulled by um the neighborhood association to congregate on top of this mountain in order to offer a prayer and things like that. So um, it it is under pressure, but at the same time, if you are either celebrating or offering respect to, uh, in the direction of the, the Imperial Palace or going to visit Yasukuni Shrine, Um, If you do this in groups, you're sort of watching each other in a way. And so you're being, you're mutually surveilling each other, right? Which means that you can't really go out of step, which means that everyone's sort of behaving and internally censoring their movements and their expressions. But then when you look at each other, when you look around, what you see is this sort of product of self-censorship right and then so you're looking at other people and then you're kind of like oh they seem happy so this must be a happy occasion they are doing this with such enthusiasm so that must be true and then for many it becomes this is sort of a practice in indoctrination and that you some people would gradually start to believe um, the actions that they are taking
0: The commitment of Japan's wartime regime to harnessing the power of groups to show respect and reverence for the war dead was extraordinary. Just as the Meiji government had orchestrated the institutionalization of joy through celebrations of Japan's military victories at the turn of the 20th century, it now focused on the institutionalization of grief. The attention and detail devoted to the proper treatment and sentiments owed to the war dead were intended to help the Japanese to internalize a sense of pride and joy rather than sadness and grief that their loved ones had died in the service of the nation. Akiko uses the case of one ordinary foot soldier, Private Umekichi, killed early on in the Asia-Pacific War to illustrate this point.
1: So this is a young man who enlists in, I believe, 1934. And he goes to, uh, you know, Manchuria to... Ostensibly protect um, a Japanese academy there, and and a few days after his training is done, he is killed um, while he's sent on a mission. And yes, he is treated with a lot of care. You know, his body is cremated with in you know, a Buddhist service, and some of his ashes are um, buried in a local. Um, cemetery, the rest of his ashes are carried back home um, in the hands of a superior. And right, it takes a train through Manchuria to the south, to Dalian, and then takes a boat from there to Kobe and then train to um, Kanagawa, which is a prefecture south of Tokyo. And along the way, these are patriotic women's groups, they, they you know, greet the train which of course means that they have been supplied with schedules, right? And instructed to gather at a particular station at a particular time to sort of welcome and and pay tribute to this box of ashes traveling home. And he finally comes home, the mayor goes with the parents to retrieve the ashes. The village hosts a big funeral um, and Dozens and dozens of people line up for the funeral parade. The house is receiving guests for days after the funeral. They even you know, receive a token gift in the name of the emperor and the empress. Of course, this is earlier on in the war, and Japan's not in an all, all-out war yet, which means that the number of people killed are not very high. So it was possible to do this. Um, And then a few months later, the family receives an invitation to the memorial service at Yasukuni Shrine. And what happens is that they get to travel. And this, this was for every warded, right? Kanagawa is very close to Tokyo, but regardless of where you lived, you received an invitation, discounted train tickets, Um, you had a place to stay for several nights in Tokyo, and then you would travel to Tokyo, you would attend the memorial service, Um, and then you also got to sightsee in Tokyo. And all of this was preserved um, in multiple photographs that were compiled into a photo album that the family received in the mail at a later date. that is a lot going on for, you know, a foot soldier.
0: As the war grew in scope and scale, enshrinement at Yasukuni broadcast to all of the nation helped prepare the living for the far greater loss of life in the years ahead.
1: It's educating, especially the bereaved family And but the rest of Japan, right? Because like all of Japan was going to become bereaved families, like every single family was going to lose somebody at war. And that was the projection, the way that Japan was fighting, which was pretty reckless. And that meant that, you know, the correct emotion of the family left behind was supposed to be gratitude. They were supposed to be grateful to have been able to. Um, devote their son to the emperor. So it wasn't supposed to be sadness or grief it was supposed to be gratitude and that this gratitude was to be practiced in groups at Yasukuni Shrine and then this is like disseminated throughout Japan through media right and then there's live radio going on of the memorial service and so the whole nation is vicariously experiencing these commemorative events and so then this is as you say an educational moment for all of Japan where They're watching the bereaved families act, express their gratitude, and they're learning that that's how they are supposed to act when their turn comes.
0: While the sentiment of gratitude was sincerely felt by many and helped them cope with the loss of a loved one, it was by no means the case for everyone. In many instances, the media edited out anything that might fly in the face of how the Japanese were expected and instructed to behave when grieving the war dead.
1: It depends on your demographic. It depends on your education level, and so I have an excerpt of a group discussion um, amongst elderly mothers who had just lost their only son, and they're sort of like, and the only son who had been their only family. I don't know how they find these women, but, um, and they are talking about. It's it's all gratitude, right? That they are talking about, and and with that demographic, I feel like maybe they did really believe in that, and they had believed that they were supposed to be grateful, and they were. And and in a way, it's a coping mechanism too, right? If if what they lost was for a good cause, maybe it is something that they can live with, but you know that's juxtaposed with this. Um, sort of recounting of, um, of uh, uh, an experience by a, a, a radio announcer who is doing like radio, live radio announcing of um, one of the memorial rituals. And there were like screams from coming from the groups of bereaved families, like murderer, give me back my son. And he's like remembering decades later that he had to try so hard to prevent the microphone from picking up those words. And and that that was like the most difficult um, thing that he did during his time as an announcer.
0: Following Japan's defeat, General Douglas MacArthur, given far-reaching powers to reshape a new democratic Japan, allowed for the survival of Yasukuni on the grounds that there would henceforth be a strict separation of state and religion in Japan. Banned from direct involvement with Yasukuni, the Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP, which governed Japan for much of the post-war era, nevertheless used its ties to Yasukuni to build its political base of support.
1: LDP pretty much came to power by catering to the bereaved families and and by sort of promising that they would sort of restore Yasukuni Shrine to its former glory, right? Because at the end of the war, um, the the government had to pull pull its support from Yasukuni Shrine um, and Yasukuni Shrine was privatized which means that it's a private religious entity and the government can't officially have anything to do with it. So there was that constitutionality issue as well.
0: Despite the constitutionally required separation of state and religion, LDP leaders did visit Yasukuni Shrine. However, in deference to the constitution, they went to great lengths to avoid visiting Yasukuni in an official capacity.
1: They... Always try to sort of skirt the constitutionality issue, and you know, not go on August fifteenth, or say that they're going in a private capacity, right? So they would say that I'm here as a person. I'm 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 here as a private person, or or some would say that well, my uncle is enshrined here, my brother is enshrined here, and that's who I came to see.
0: All of this changed in 1985 when Prime Minister Nakasone made a dramatic break with political precedent.
1: doesn't really become a huge international problem until 1985, when then-Prime Minister Nakasone visits Yasukuni Shrine on August 15th, which is the day that you know, Japan commemorates the end of the war. Um, even though it's not an official day, right? It's not the day that the San Francisco Treaty was signed, and it was the day that the emperor announced that He was ending the war, but in any case, um, so Nakasone went to Yasukuni Shrine on August 15th and he he declared that he is there in his official capacity as the prime minister of Japan. China is enraged by this because, you know, the optics, right? the Prime Minister, the leader of Japan going to pay tribute to a shrine in which Class A war criminals are worshipped. The optics of that was just just so horrible and that's when um, the Yasukuni issue really becomes an issue.
0: Yasukuni wasn't just an international issue that enraged Japan's neighbors. It also caused serious rifts at home. Okinawans whose prefecture was the only place where fighting actually took place on Japanese soil, were shocked to discover that many of their loved ones had also been enshrined at Yasukuni. A once independent kingdom, annexed by Japan in the 19th century, many Okinawans felt that they had been brutally treated by the Japanese military and sacrificed by the Tokyo government in a hopeless conflict. How was it that a site devoted to the military war dead also included Okinawan civilians. Here, Akiko explains how Okinawans found themselves caught up in another form of collaboration between the Shrine and the LDP leadership.
1: Right after the Allied occupation ended, at the end of April, 1952, the Japanese government passes this law called War Injured and War Bereaved Families Act. And in Japanese, this is engoho, and it was, you know, a monetary support in forms of pensions and one time um, gifting of money to the bereaved families. In order to receive this fund, the family member had to, you know, fill out paperwork and say that, so this is my husband and this is his, you know, personal biological information, he was killed in this area on this day, Da da da, da I'm requesting uh, financial support. And so bereaved families started to do this. Um, the following year, in August of 1953, this Engoho is expanded to Okinawan civilians. And this is because many civilians aided the Japanese military in Okinawa. And so the expanded Engoho stipulated that Okinawans, if you can prove it—not prove, if you can demonstrate the ways in which you helped the Japanese military, you will be covered by this Engoho and you will get money. And you know, many Okinawans were impoverished, and they had uh, many had conflicted emotions about this, but. Many filed this paperwork in order to get financial support that they desperately needed. Now, there was one component, one more component of this story that I need to to introduce here first before moving on. And, And one key piece of information that is needed here is that so the elaborate enshrinement ritual that Umekiti was lucky umekiti's family was lucky enough to experience. Not all the bereaved families got to experience that. And that is because the death toll kept rising and rising and rising, especially in the last three years of the war. And so the memorial services started lagging behind. Because you know, you got to invite the family members and do this elaborate thing. Um, And so many millions of people, so many people, hundreds and thousands of people were dying. And at the end, 2.3 million and some change men lost their lives, which meant that in August 1945, when the war ends, only about 10% of the dead had been enshrined at Yasukuni Shrine, which means 90% of 2.3 million, I'm not gonna do the math, but a significant number of people had still not been enshrined. And so Yasukuni Shrine wants to memorialize all the outstanding members, but since it's been privatized, it's, it doesn't have the resources that it used to have. And so it reaches out to the government for help. Of course, because of the constitution, the government is not supposed to help the shrine, but they strike a deal. The government had this internal document of all the list of the people who had applied for pension through this angle hole. And the government suggested to the shrine that they request this information sort of like a, you know, what's the word? Open acts, Open, Open mm-hmm. Information Act, right? Mm-hmm. The, the government is obliged to re- respond to re- requests. Um, and so they go through this process and the Shrine very efficiently is able to get the names of all the names and, and other information of the remaining 90% of the war dead. However, mixed into this list, right, were the Okinawans, too, who had filed for the same pension. So their names kind of accidentally ended up being in this list and they accidentally ended up getting enshrined um, at Yasukuni. And apparently there are names of somebody who died a one-year-old who died, or there were names of like a ninety-something-year-old man who died, who clearly did not aid the military, but they their names ended up being at, um, included into the register of the shrine.
0: How the Japanese remember the Asia Pacific War today, and how they think about Yasukuni, is profoundly shaped by important generational differences. Akiko identifies two generations in particular, an older generation exposed to the nationalist education system and the devastation of Japan at the end of the war, and a younger generation, born well after the war, in a time of peace and unprecedented prosperity.
1: So first, the generation that were children during the war, because the war lasted for such a long time right if you're born anytime between 1931 and i don't know early 1940s your whole life is about war and you are um receiving lessons using the most nationalistic most revisionist textbooks <laughs> um and so if you don't know anything else, that's your entire world. And your entire world is that the emperor is God. And, you know, Japan's war is this holy war. And it's almost like manifest destiny, right? You grow up believing in that because that's the only world you know. And so so many people talk about the tremendous sense of betrayal that they felt in August, 1945, that the adults were all lying to them. And that becomes um, augmented when school starts again, right? And the teachers had been told to instruct um, what parts of the textbook to, to, to black out, blacken out, because there were no money to, you know, produce new textbooks right after the war. And so these children are told to, you know, black out with ink. In some cases, like pages after pages, because those were, you know, propaganda basically. And their teachers, right, who had been teaching them that the emperor god and so on and so forth, are all of a sudden talking about democracy and, and so. There too, they experience this tremendous sense of betrayal. And so their anger is directed towards adults more generally, but most importantly, the government, because for them, it's the political and military leaders that betrayed them.
0: Not only does this older generation tend to be the most critical of Yasukuni as a surviving legacy of the wartime regime, it has also been the driving force Behind Japan's commitment to peace education, Japan has by far the preponderance of the world's peace museums. Many of these museums were founded by this older generation during the era of the Vietnam War.
1: So, a lot of the peace museums um, have been built in areas that have experienced heavy air raids, Um, like Osaka like uh, there's another one in Saitama, there's one in Kawasaki, there there are many peace museums. And many of them started with the effort to preserve memories of um, the local air raid experience. And the kind of people who can talk about local air raid experiences, either women or men who were too young to be drafted at that time, right? So the men who were too young to be drafted, many tended to be of that generation who experienced war as a child and and received a nationalistic education. Um, And so the leaders behind some of these museums are indeed people from that generation.
0: Much like the blame cast on Yasukuni for brainwashing a generation of Japanese and fueling the tragedy of the war, the experience of the air raids that dominates Japan's peace museums also depicts the Japanese as victims of the Asia-Pacific War. The memory trigger for this perspective was Japan's role as a staging ground for the Vietnam War.
1: Victimhood narratives sell, and the victimhood narratives are a very convenient way to build a collective identity And who wants to remember your country as the oppressor, right? And the people who were at war and survived and came back, they didn't talk about their experiences. Because it's not something that they were proud of. It's not something that they wanted to share. And so the vocal ones ended up becoming um, the survivors of the air raid experience. And it's a little more complicated because um, the drives to collect and preserve memories started during Vietnam. And the United States was using Japan and South Korea as a base, right, to fight the war in Vietnam from. And the Japanese people knew that. And, And because it was such a televised war, unlike Korea, Japanese people started seeing you know, the exact same bombs that had fallen on top of them falling on Northern Vietnam. And that's when um, some of these men in particular started to be like, we need to talk about how horrible that experience was. And we need to tell the people, tell, and, and it's not that Japanese people could stop the war, right? Because it's the government's treaty, with the United States that was enabling all of this. But there was a huge anti-Vietnam movement in Japan as well. And this move to collect air raid memories um, started as a part of the anti-Vietnam movement.
0: The younger generation, born well after the war, are caught between narratives of suffering and victimization that pervade post-war Japanese society and the outrage by Japan's neighbors that it has not done enough to make amends for the past.
1: But the other generation that you're talking about, the generation born after the war, and obviously I belong to that generation as well, but um, it, in, it in my case too, because I grew up in a multi-generational household, I I kept hearing bits and pieces of war stories, especially from my grandmother. And there were any number of television dramas and and books, children's books, that were about the horrors of war and and how, how much Japanese people suffered I distinctly remember books about like little girls who lost their fathers in allied areas or little kids orphaned in Hiroshima and I, I guess one example the one famous example is the grave of fireflies. Um, uh, brother and sister orphaned in Kobe, I believe, um, but so I half grew up, I, I moved to the States when I was nine. But um, mm. before that move, I, I consumed these narratives, because it was everywhere. And, and so then there's this sense that Japanese people suffered, right. But then there's also this other piece of information that doesn't quite um, mesh with the Japanese people suffered narrative, which is, you know, this problem of Japan not really um, working enough on its its war responsibility, not apologizing enough to the rest of Asia. Um, and, And so then how do these two problems come together? And I think a lot of the younger generation now are being caught in between this and especially, the generation that is young right now, right, like I grew up hearing these narratives because my parents and my grandparents experienced the war, but the younger generation now their parents haven't experienced the war. Some, in some cases, not even their grandparents and so this war thing is very, very far away, but they are still feeling this this negative sentiment that comes from China that comes from South Korea and and, but on the other hand, these stories of Japanese suffering still persists in Japanese society. So it, and, and, and um, this time period is not being taken up in, in mandatory education in particular and not even in high schools, which means that they are, many youth are at a loss, I, I think, when it comes to Japan's past.
0: The Yushukan Military Museum, located on the shrine grounds and long affiliated with Yasukuni, has been revamped to appeal to this younger generation by offering a more uplifting version of Japan's past.
1: Just as with any history museum, it, it you know if you go through the rooms, it's chronological. You look at the earlier wars, right? Sino-Japanese War, Russo-Japanese War, but the main portion of the display is about the Asia-Pacific War. Um, you know, told in a very revisionist way. And then, and using objects, right? Like war-stained uniforms or um, tools or weapons. And then, and, and, and letters, letters that these men wrote back home. And in the last couple of rooms, you see photographs Hundreds of photographs. You're, you're sort of surrounded by photographs of faces of the men who are enshrined at Yasukuni and several women, and so you know you're surrounded by basically photographs of dead people, right, who died at war. And this is after going through this narrative of you know Japan fought back and sacrificed and defended itself, and then you see the faces of these men and some women. And so if you're coming into this with a blank slate, just because you don't really learn about modern Japan in school, right? But you're sort of grappling with this like, but there was supposed to be all this suffering but we're supposed to be bad guys, what's going on? And then if you go into that museum with that kind of an attitude, I mean, not everyone, but you know how there are notebooks at the end of many museums where the visitors would write down their thoughts. And whenever I go, I will flip through the pages, and, and they, there are so many writings about, oh my gosh, I am so proud of my country now. I don't know why nobody taught this in school. I'm so grateful, Da da da. And, and it, 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 it is a very dangerous tool.
0: Yasukuni Shrine has become the focal point for the divisions in Japan over the memory of the Asia-Pacific War. Derided by the left for promoting the fanaticism of the past, and honored by the right as the preeminent shrine to the nation's war dead, the true complexity of Yasukuni gets lost in the crossfire. Akiko reminds us that Yasukuni has never had one meaning. First a site of leisure and recreation, it took decades for Japan's leaders to transform Yasukuni into a space for the celebration of military victories. It was only at the start of the 20th century that Yasukuni became a sacred site for the nation's war dead. In the post-war years, the LDP used the shrine to build support among bereaved families. The revisionist narrative at the Yushukan Military Museum now targets a younger generation unsure about the nation's past. Akiko explains that it is precisely because she prefers to chronicle the complexity of the site rather than take a side in Japan's memory wars that Japanese publishers have been reluctant to translate her book. I would like to thank Akiko Takanaka for so kindly sharing her time and thoughts with me. I'm also very grateful to her for directing me to a wealth of online royalty-free images, which I've used on the podcast's website and Instagram account. Episode 3 will air in one month's time and will feature the memory of the slave trade in Liverpool. Although it was only active in the slave trade for about 50 years, Liverpool ships carried 10% of all the slaves during the entire 400-year history of the Atlantic slave trade. We'll hear from Bristol University historian Jessica Moody on how the memory of the slave trade has persisted in Liverpool over the past 200 years. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter, or go to our website, realmsofmemory.com, for updates on the podcast schedule and details of future episodes. I'm your host, Rick Dedarian, and thank you for listening to Realms of Memory.